I'm Trevor Emsley, and I'm joined uh, by Peter Dax, who is joined by me. And uh, this is our first ever um, podcast that we're doing uh, under the banner of the taxpayer. It's my first ever. I don't know if Peter's done any before. No. Um, so the, our primary objective is to have a bit of fun and hopefully um, it'll be enjoyable and of some use to, to those who might find themselves watching it. Um, Peter, do you want to introduce our topic for today? Yeah, we're going to talk about the Fowler case, the Fowler judgment, the UK judgment, touching on quite a few interesting aspects of international tax law, which is why I think it's quite interesting. Um, and was uh, judgment came out about a year ago, um, but it's received a lot of attention. Um, I think for the reason that it does illustrate a lot of principles of international tax law. And Trivial notice there's a little strong South African aspect to it or elements to it. Um, Mr. Fowler was South African, which obviously we'll come on to in a minute. But I don't know if you saw it was argued by Jonathan Schwartz, who's a South African as well, ex-South African. He's Indeed. now quite a prominent uh, barrister in, in the UK. Yeah. I, as a, as a, anecdotally, I've I've been uh, um, a, an accountant spoke to me about some people he knew involved in diving, and uh, couldn't we help them? And then I gave him a file case to read, and he said, "Well, uh, not much we can do now in the light of that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it, it doesn't just affect the one person. It's true, eh? That is true. I think there are a lot of principles that are interesting. Another interesting thing is that it goes, the UK tax, tax system seems interesting because it went through four tribunals, yeah. you know, so that's quite a lot and it's interesting. So in the first one, um, what do they call themselves? Um, the tax chamber, Mr. Fowler won, and then the tax and chancery chamber, HMRC won, um, then it went to the court of appeal and Mr. Fowler won. And then it went to the Supreme Court and HMRC won, so it was two all. But unfortunately for Mr. Fowler, um, the Supreme Court found against him. Uh, and I th as I understand it, that's the end of the matter. I think that's the final Court of Appeal for civil matters in the UK. So I think I think that's where it ends. Um, but maybe just coming on to the facts, because uh, Trevor always say in our job, uh, we've actually got an easy job. Eh? All we have to do is unpack the facts unpack the law and apply the law to the facts. I mean, what's so hard about that? What could be simpler? You know, and, and often, often either the facts are very complicated or the law is very complicated and sometimes both. Here the facts are simple. So Mr. Fowler, Martin Fowler, a South African resident, qualified diver, toddles off to the UK and he dives in, on the UK continental shelf, a deep sea diver. So that's UK territorial waters. Um, and he gets obviously gets paid for doing that. Um, and he did that in 2011 and 2012 um, and earned money from doing it. And, and those are the facts, you know, that's about as simple as you get. Eh? And then, um, you know, the law part is obviously more tricky. So um, the issue is really the South Africa UK uh, double tax agreement um, and whether the taxing rights were allocated to the UK. Um, or whether they were allocated to South Africa. That's, that was the, the legal question. Um, and it was held in the UK. And the UK is obviously the state of source, um, being the place where Mr. Fowler did his diving. So that's the source state. South Africa is the resident state, being the state in which Mr. Fowler was a resident. Um, and basically, the court had to decide which articles of the DTA applied to Mr. Fowler. Um, 
And the nub of it was really, there were two articles they looked at, and the one was Article 14, um, which, which relates to income from employment. Um, and if the court found that Article 14 applied, then the UK as the source state would have taxing rights. And the other article is the more general article, Article 7, um, dealing with business profits. And if that article applied, then South Africa had taxing rights because Mr. Fowler didn't operate through a permanent establishment in, in the UK. So that's kind of what it came down to. Um, so Article 14 dealing with um, uh, income from employment um, was, um, <clears throat> was the most more specific one. So that's the one you look at first. Um, and the question is, um, was Mr. Fowler earning income from employment? Now, when you read a DTA, obviously, as you know, um, you look at the defined terms. If they're defined terms, then they have a, they have a definition, so you kind of know how to, how to interpret them. But if terms in a DTA are not defined, then it becomes a little bit more complicated, um, and you turn to Article 3 in brackets 2 of, of DTAs, including the UK DTA. Now, Trevor, I don't know if you've ever read Article 3, 2 of a DTA. It is... It is, it is just impossible. You can wrap as many wet towels around your head as you want. <laughs> you kind of, you know, you, 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 you know, really struggle to make sense of it. So essentially what, it's, what it means um, it's quite, is- Quoted in the final judgment, isn't it? Quoted in the, do you, want to, do you want to read it, Trevor? Let me just it's, get it on my iPad. Um, while you're doing it, I'll, I'll kind of tell everyone what it, what it means. It's, it's kind of, it says that the, the jurisdiction that's applying the DTA must use its, um, its tax law concepts um, when interpreting the DTA. So in this case, um, the UK is the source state, they're applying the DTA um, to determine if they have taxing rights. So you have to look at UK tax law concepts when you're interpreting terms that are not defined. So in this case, the concept is employment what does employment mean as a matter of UK tax law? And I emphasize the tax law, not general law, but tax law is sort of the critical um, uh, aspect there. But uh, that's definitely not what, you know, if you read article 3.2, you know, I'm, simplify, I'm simplifying it a bit. Yeah, please do. Okay, please what do. it says, as regards the application of the provisions of this convention at any time by a contracting state, any term not defined therein shall, unless the context otherwise requires, have the meaning that it has at the time under the law of that state for the purposes of the taxes to which this convention applies, any meaning under the applicable tax laws of that state prevailing over a meaning given to the term under the other laws of that state. Simple, eh? Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so after my, my 3,000 reading, <laughs> You kind of figure out, and I don't think there was much dispute about that in the judgment. You know, they kind of said, um, you know, the UK needs to apply its law. Um, but I think where there was a lot of sort of, you know, confusion for me is, 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 is what law is a tax law, and the fact that there's a deeming provision is that relevant, etc. Because the nub of it is, in terms of UK tax laws, I understand it. Um, they treat certain divers, certain qualifying divers, as if they were self-employed. In other words, as if they were not employed, as if they were carrying on a trade and self-employed. And as I understand it, that's the UK tax position. And, and I can read from the judgment, Lord Briggs, um, 
he said, um, so he says, employed divers doing the particular kind of diving in UK waters, which, with which Mr. Fowler did are under UK tax law to be treated as if they were self-employed for income tax purposes. So there you are. They treated for UK tax purposes as if they were self-employed. Um, so to me, then you say, well, he was self-employed as a matter of UK tax law. So he didn't earn income from employment. Um, so Article 14 cannot apply. Um, and so you go to Article 7. And Article 7, as I said, allocates the taxing rights to South Africa. Um, and you picked up in your editorial note that there was a methinks the lady doth protest too much kind of comment where Lord Briggs said we mustn't be distracted by issues of double non-taxation. <laughs> and I think that was quite telling because if um, if the UK um, uh, didn't tax under Article uh, uh, 14 and the taxing rights, exclusive taxing rights came to South Africa, then of course, in terms of our domestic law, Section 1010, as it was at the time, would have exempted the income. So the UK wouldn't have taxed it, we wouldn't have taxed it, double non-taxation. I don't know what your sense of that is, Trevor, how heinous that is. Uh, I think that was the elephant in the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I mention the D word? I mean, the, the, the thing that seems to have bedeviled this case is there was a deeming provision involved. Mm. Um, that, that, uh, and the court was asked to assume that Fowler, the taxpayer, was in fact an employee. But in terms of the UK domestic tax law, he was deemed to be self-employed. In other words, deemed to be carrying on a trade. And apparently the reason for that is people who do that type of diving at that, those sort of depths tend to buy their own equipment. Uh, so that they can have faith in it, presumably. And so they, they, they warrant a more generous tax regime, i.e. being able to, to depreciate their own equipment than, than if they were mere employees. And uh, if I can just make a few points, um, I've, I've just jotted down a few points here. And I, it seems to me that the, the whole of the outcome of this case was bedeviled by the fact that there was a deeming provision involved. Um, and it seems to me that the Court of Appeal, which found in Fowler's favour, um, placed the emphasis on what was the tax position of the, the taxpayer under the deeming provision. In other words, what was, the, what was the effect of the deeming provision on the taxpayer, on the tax position of the taxpayer, whereas the Supreme Court seems to have said, well, what is the effect of the deeming provision on the DTA? And then they make a couple of uh, super profound statements, and I'm being sarcastic here. Um, uh, they sort of ask rhetorically, is the purpose of the deeming provision uh, to alter the settled meaning of the double tax agreement? Uh, the obvious answer to that is, of course not. Mm. The purpose of a deeming provision was to, was to establish UK domestic tax law, not to, to alter the meaning of a, of a DTA. But that kind of also begs the question of, well, what is the meaning of the DTA? Then they also say that the purpose was not to re render people like Fowler immune from tax in the UK or of adjusting the UK versus South Africa, to which, again, I would say, of course it's not. That is, you know, you're setting up skittles just to knock them down. To, to my mind, the real question is, should the double tax agreement not be interpreted with reference to the UK tax position of the taxpayer? 
Hundred percent. And and the real question, as I see it, and this is I'm looking at what was written in the taxpayer. Um, I said, in my view, the real question should have been, what was the effect on the interpretation of the double tax agreement of the state of affairs that was deemed to exist in terms of and for the purposes of UK tax law? Not what was the effect thereon of the actual state of affairs, which was overridden by the deeming provision. But, you know, there's a kind of a tension there as well, because Mr. Fowler, who was a South African, uh, although there was a deeming provision in it, well, that 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 was the reality of his tax situation. It wasn't just exactly. Yeah. It was caused by a deeming provision, but it was real. Um, and why why should that not be uh, taken into account? In other words, if if for UK tax purposes he was treated as if he was carrying on a trade, mm -hmm. uh, why should that not apply um, in respect to the double tax agreement? And, and it was the reality in terms of the UK tax law. So to me, the fact that it that is a UK tax law deemed him to be self-employed doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you get there. You know, the yeah. fact is, you look at UK tax law. Is he seen as self-employed or not? Yeah. Yes, he is seen as self-employed. How the fact that it's through a deeming provision to me is completely irrelevant. And when you start, you know, Article Three Two, I'm sort of talking about it slightly facetiously, but it's a complicated enough provision as it is. When you start saying it only applies in circumstances where as a consequence of general tax law, you get to a certain position as opposed to a deeming provision, then all bets are off, you know, you might as well just scratch it out of the DTA. Um, yeah. And there's already an escape hatch in Article 3 here, and it's, it's got these words that you read, Trevor, unless the context otherwise provides. And so the Supreme Court, I thought, could have gone through that um, escape hatch and said, the context here clearly provides, so they could have said he is self-employed as a matter of UK tax law, but there's a context that provides otherwise, you know, and sort of argued on that basis. But that's not the route they took. They just said Article 3 to, you know, it didn't, didn't um, preclude the UK from taxing it in terms of its general meaning of Article 3 to, and, and that, that I, I didn't follow. Um, um, the, the date I've got of the judgment is the 20th of May, 2020. Um, I said mm -hmm. about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. But that means it was after the, Rugby World Cup. <laughs> I, I was wondering who was going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> and it was quite, quite seen afterwards. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was, you know, just, just, you know, moving on to that sort of the concept of, of double non-taxation, because I think that's, that's quite interesting for me. And I've always had quite um, firm views on that, that um, DTAs allocate taxing rights to jurisdictions. They don't tell the jurisdictions how they must tax. You know, that's up to the domestic law. So if you allocate a taxing right to a jurisdiction and they choose to tax the, the income at a rate of 90% or at 9%, what difference does that make? You know, and, and when does double non-taxation become non-taxation? Is it at 0%? Is it at 5%? Is it at a rate lower than your rate? You know, this stuff is complex enough. You know, I think, oh. you know, you shouldn't muddy the waters by sort of bringing in those sorts of concepts of, of double non-taxation. Um, and, and I think it's also not true because Article 14 um, could have had a subject to tax clause, which it didn't have. And the subject to tax clause basically says the UK gives up its taxing rights only if South Africa exercises its, its taxing rights. And there's no subject to tax clause. If the UK had wanted to protect their taxing rights in circumstances where South Africa didn't tax, they should have put one in. 
you know, or renegotiated. They renegotiated a protocol not that long ago, you know. So the other ways of dealing with it, um, but I agree, I think it was the elephant in the in the courtroom was double non-taxation. Um, what's the passage here? Can, can I read it to you? Mm. Uh, this is from the judgment. Uh, they say, hey, um, this was the conclusion of the majority in the Court of Appeal from which HMRC appeals to this court. In fact, such an outcome could mean that Mr. Fowler was not taxable in either country because the question whether he was taxable in South Africa would not be governed by the meaning of the treaty terms established by reference to UK tax law. He would probably be treated in South Africa as an employee. To the extent that domestic South African tax legislation did not tax the earnings of residents employed abroad, he would not be taxable there or in the UK. Mm. That's the elephant in the room. Yeah, yeah. There is no general provision in this treaty, as there is in many others, to deal with what is called double non-taxation. But the question whether South Africa did tax the earnings of its residents employed abroad was not investigated in these proceedings. So it would be inappropriate to place any weight on this consideration in construing the treaty. To which my reaction is, well, then why mention it? Mention it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In the room. And it's interesting that, you know, as you said that there are many cases where treaties deal with double non-taxation. I'm not sure that that's right. Certainly not in South Africa's treaties. Now, of course, the multilateral instrument, which is coming in and at some point in South Africa, we still have to ratify the thing, but at some point it's going to apply. And that deals specifically with double non-taxation and says double non-taxation in the context of treaties is a bad thing and you must try and, and prevent it and avoid it, the Article 6 of the MLI. And that's fine. So when that comes and then we understand, you know, because that MLI sits alongside treaties and we interpret the treaty along with the MLI when it comes into force. But at the time of this judgment, it wasn't applicable. So oh. double non-taxation, the MLR wasn't applicable. There wasn't a subject to tax laws. So double non-taxation shouldn't have played a role. And, you know, no, no doubt the three lords and two ladies would have said it played no role. But, you know, one wonders about that. Um, no, there's an, old, there's an old judgment of um, uh, Judge Miller in, in the Natal special tax court, um, which went on appeal and was reported as, as Downer's mm. case. I'm sure you know mm. that was about 1975. Mm. Um, Corbett gave that judgment. And, and sure. it's pity that the, that the tax court judgment was never reported, except um, uh, it is in the taxpayer in fairly recently, just under the case number, you know, the, the, the administrative case number. It's never reported as an ITC case. But there the judge said, um, in, on the facts, in terms of Swiss law, there was no tax payable. Mm. And in terms of South African, and the, the, the treaty allocated taxing rights to South Africa. And, and SARS tried to argue that, that the, the um, protection under the DTA uh, only applied if tax was payable in Switzerland. But if there's no tax mm. payable in Switzerland, you couldn't get off scot-free and the judge rejected that. Um, so, you know, it's not just you and I who are imagining these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In I, fact, I, our, I, old, uh, <coughs> our old uh, DTA with Switzerland um, had a provision where it gave, in the, in the case of a permanent establishment in Switzerland, they had exclusive taxing rights and we had to exempt the income. 
-hmm. was up until about 2005, so six, somewhere around there. Um, so, you know, that was an interesting treaty, which has since, since been changed. And that's the thing that, you know, jurisdictions, uh, treaties are bilateral negotiated um, instruments. You know, you can amend them, you can introduce protocols, etc. And if you don't like a provision, you can change it, yeah. you know, especially around subject to tax, etc. Um, but just, you know, that, that, as I say, as I read this judgment, uh, you know, it just, it doesn't give me the sense of comfort around how it was interpreted in terms of applying Article 332. Um, and maybe just following on from that, you know, if one, one sort of says, you know, well, let's say Article 7 did apply. So let's say Article 14 was not correct and, and the court got it wrong and Article 7 applied, then Mr. Fowler would only be taxed in the UK if he operated through a permanent establishment there, which of course he didn't because he's a diver. He's in the water and he's moving around and he doesn't have a fixed place of business, etc. So then the UK wouldn't have had taxing rights. South Africa would have had taxing rights. Um, and even in the case of Article 14, where the UK has taxing rights, um, South Africa doesn't lose its taxing rights, it just needs to give a credit for the UK tax um, suffered. But as we said at the time, the Section 10.1a exemption would have exempted Mr. Fowler from tax. The 10.1a exemption, a lot of fuss around that reason, because that's been carved down or brought down to, I think it's 1.25 million rand um, is the amount that's exempt. Never had so many phone calls from long forgotten friends in the UK as when they changed that section 1010 provision. <laughs> People were phoning me from all over the place and professing to want to catch up on all sorts of things, but that was actually the only reason they were, they were, they were calling. Um, but you know, but at the time there was a complete exemption um, yeah. for, for foreign earnings. Um, you know, I, I printed out for, the, for this occasion a uh, quote that I always enjoy. Uh, it's from Lord Asquith in a case called East End Dwellings Company Limited versus Finsbury Borough, and it's 1951. And Lord Asquith said the following, he said, if, if one is bidden to treat an imaginary state of affairs as real, in other words, the deeming provisions, mm. must surely, unless prohibited from doing so, also imagine as real the consequence and incidents which, if the putative state of affairs had in fact existed, must have inevitably flowed from or accompanied it. The statute says that one must imagine a certain state of affairs. It does not say that having done so, one must cause or permit one's imagination to boggle when it comes to the inevitable corollaries of that state of affairs. With respect, I think their lordships and their ladyships allowed um, their imaginations to boggle. <laughs> Um, the idea of Mr. Fowler paying no tax anywhere was just too much for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and but, uh, sadly that's where it ended. Eh? But yeah, very interesting judgment. And as I say, sort of, it does illustrate sort of important principles of international tax law. Um, so I find it very interesting. Well, it'd be interesting to speculate what a South African court would, would find if presented with the equivalent issue. Yeah, absolutely. That is true. And we, and we have so little case law on international tax concepts in South Africa, you know, it'd be really nice to kind of our courts to get to grips with, with DTAs, etc. So, you know, but um, yeah, this was, this was, as I said, went through a rigorous process, almost yo-yo between the courts and ended up with a final judgment in favor of HMRC. So no. that's where it ends. Eh? No. I suppose there's been no sequel to it because the court was assuming that he was in fact an employee 
and the relevant deeming provision in the UK deemed someone who was in fact an employee to be self-employed. Um, exactly, well. exactly. And you just wonder how often these facts come up as well, I'm just not sure it's that relevant. In fact, it's quite interesting that it went all the way through the process for, you'd imagine, fairly, fairly small amounts as well. I'm sure there wasn't a fortune at stake and important principles at stake there. So, yeah. yeah. We'll see if we get any more similar judgments on similar matters. Eh? Yeah. Anyway, maybe we've, uh, if we've got any listeners to this first podcast, maybe we've uh, uh, spent enough time uh, trying their patience. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the plan for, is for Peter and I to, to do this at regular intervals to keep them mm -hmm. fairly short and succinct and relevant and uh, hopefully it'll be worthwhile for not just for ourselves but you know for, for me it's 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 nice that we enjoy it but hopefully that also means that other people enjoy it as well yeah absolutely and very nice chatting trevor really enjoyed it yeah, yeah i look forward to the next one eh? i think it's a yeah. nice interesting topic eh? and then peter actually is an international tax lawyer <laughs> i'm not <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Good, thanks, and hopefully we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Peter.